good morning. How are we doing out there? Good. good. I'd like for us to begin with uh, prayer time. Um, we need to pray for Patrick Mahomes' ankle. <laughs> we pray for ankles around here. Hey, welcome to New Life. If this is your first time with us, um, welcome. So glad you're here. I hope I get a chance to meet you before you go home today. I'm looking out at us. There's not a lot of empty seats in here. And I used to tell people, well, hey, try one of our other services. But I can tell you Saturday nights look just like this. So look around. This is what it looks like on Saturday nights. And then, um, yeah, definitely applaud for that. And then um, our 8.30 service and our 11.30 service aren't quite this full. But I can tell you, they're not far behind. So we're running out of room. So it's a good thing we're building something out on the west side. Let me just say that. And just in case you're wondering um, where we're at in the progress on that building, um, all the walls are up, and they're actually going to start sheetrock next week. And so all the electricians and stuff, I mean, it's pretty awesome. That thing is really taking shape. The electricians have been through I was just out there the other day. You can actually walk the whole floor plan, and you can see, the, like, this is what it's going to be. And, and uh, there's a ton of work left to do, but it is coming right along. So, guys, please keep praying for that. If you don't know what I'm talking about, we're launching a second campus on the west side of, the, of uh, Bella Vista. It's right off the new bypass, right off the Highlands Boulevard exits, right there on the highway. Can't miss it if you drive by there. And so... You know, relief is coming. Relief is coming. God's about to do something really special this fall on top of what he's already have done. And uh, I'm excited about walking down this journey with all of you. But anyway, hey, how many of you, uh, uh, when your kids were little or even right now, watched all those little Pixar movies like Toy Story, Cars, Monsters, Inc.? When my boys were little, um, they watched all those movies. And, and uh, one of their favorites was Finding Nemo. Do your kids like Finding Nemo? And my boys loved Finding Nemo. In fact, we had a van one time when they were just little boys um, that had a drop-down DVD player in it. And I can I guarantee I know that movie by heart uh, because I had listened to it a thousand times when I was driving. Um, but um, Finding Nemo is about this little fish named Nemo who was happy as a button living on the reef. And then one day, uh, there's a snorkeler that comes by and he snatches Nemo away from his home. And this snorkeler happened to be a dentist and he took Nemo from the ocean and he put him in his aquarium in his dentist office and uh, with all the other fish that he has presumably taken from the ocean. Now inside this uh, aquarium in this dentist's office, there is another fish named Gil, and Gil's kind of the ringleader of all the aquarium fish, and he hatches this great escape plan to get out. Now, you've seen this scene, right? You're like, you understand some of these details coming back to you? So Gil says to Nemo, hey, Nemo, you see that thing up there? And Nemo goes, yeah, I see it. And Gil says, you're the only one small enough to get in and out of that thing. And what I need you to do is I need you to take a pebble and I need you to swim up there and I need you to jam the gears. And when you jam the gears, this tank's gonna get filthier and filthier by the minute. And pretty soon the dentist is gonna have to clean his tank. And when he does, he's gonna take us out of the tank. He's gonna put us in individual baggies and then we're gonna roll ourselves down the counter, out the window, off the awning, into the bushes, across the street, into the uh, uh, harbor. It's... Foolproof. <laughs> and then he says, who's with me? Well, if you know the movie, the, the plan didn't quite go quite right, but Nemo did get out, and he gets reunited with his dad, and he goes home to the reef. But then at the very end of the movie, we catch back up with all the fish that are still in the aquarium, and we learn they actually do put that plan into motion again, and they get out. And what I think Pixar has done out of all of their Movies, I think they were able to capture the best 45 seconds 
in their history. Here, watch this. Barbara, I don't understand it. Here, this thing has a lifetime guarantee and it breaks. I had to clean the tank myself, take all the fish out, put them in bags and... Where'd the fish go? Now what? <laughs> now what? I love that scene. Now, now what are we gonna do? We got out. We haven't thought this far ahead. Now what? And this is gonna be a little bit of a glimpse into how my brain works. I see that scene from the end of that movie, Finding Nemo, and immediately, for whatever reason, my mind goes, that, I think that's what the Israelites were like at the end of chapter 15 and 16. I mean, the Israelites have just come through this dramatic escape from Egypt, capped off by this thrilling rescue right through the Red Sea, and the Egyptian army was completely decimated behind them. And when they saw they were saved, um, they, they shouted out and they praised God and they danced and they celebrated right there on the shores of the Red Sea. And when the singing and dancing stopped, now what? Now what are we going to do? We've just come through this great experience of deliverance and celebration. Now what? There's this transition that takes place after the Red Sea crossing celebration. God told the Israelites, you are never gonna see these Egyptians again. So in other words, your time in Egypt is now over. It is behind you. Now is the time, you're across the sea, and it is time to move forward towards the promised land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob many years before. That's the now what. But there is a significant problem. And the problem is this. Even though these Israelites are physically out of Egypt in many ways. Their minds and their hearts are still very much there. In fact, it's amazing to me as we just read the few verses off into the future like we're gonna do today, how quickly these Israelites seem to abandon their understanding of God and what he has done for them and they start grumbling again about their current situation. In fact, the way they grumble about it, it, it they look back into Egypt, they go, oh, do you remember when it was so awesome in Egypt? And you know Moses and Aaron are like, you've gotta be kidding me. But even though they're out of Egypt, their hearts and minds are very much still there and it's obvious how they quickly reflect back on their slavery in positive ways. It doesn't matter that they are still, even after going through the Red Sea, being led by God through a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The very presence of God is still there in front of them and it only takes them three days to start grumbling about their current situation. And what was that situation? We don't have any water. What are we going to drink? Now, as Cody Priest last week did a great job, didn't he? As he preached last week, here we go. Uh, moving at the end of chapter 15, I wanna remind you of something that he read last week as a way to transition us into chapter 16. If you look at Exodus 15, verse 25, it says this. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them, and catch this next part, and put them to the test. He said, 
if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not, not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. God was going to put them to the test. Says so right here in verse 25. Why in the world would God test them? Did God not already know everything there was to know about him? Them? Of course he did. I mean, what discovery could God possibly make by putting the Israelites to the test? Listen, God wasn't testing them because he didn't know about them. He wasn't testing them because there was something new to learn. No, 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 no. God was testing them because these Israelites did not even know their own hearts yet. And it becomes obvious over these next couple of chapters that these Israelites have a lot of growing to do if they are ever going to become the holy nation that God envisioned them to become, the very reason for why God rescued them out of Egypt. He has a plan, he has a vision, and they're not ready to become what God has envisioned yet for them. They've got a lot of growing to do. So he's gonna put them to the test, and he's gonna test them in several ways. He's gonna test them with their drinks, he's gonna test them with their food, and he's gonna test them in battle. And I think about us today, and I think about testing, and I think about trials and hard times that we encounter in this world. And we ask the question, God, and maybe you've asked the same one, why am I going through this right now? God, why am I being put through this? Why do I have to endure something so strong and hard in my life? God, are you doing something more than what I can see? I really like how Warren Wiersbe, a preacher, um, talks about trials and a lot of his writings tend to agree with this part. He says this, the Lord tests us to encourage spiritual growth and bring out the best in us. And I agree with that. I do believe the Lord tests us to bring out the best in us. I believe he is testing the Israelites to bring out the best in them because they're not ready to be what he's calling them to become. Then Warren Wiersbe says this, but the devil tempts us to bring out the worst in us and to encourage spiritual immaturity. The attitude that we take toward our, difference, our difficulties determines which direction life will go. For what life does to us depends on what life finds us in. And then he writes this, if we trust God and obey his word, we'll pass the test and grow. But if in unbelief, we complain and disobey the Lord, will fail the test and remain immature. Now, there's a lot there to think through, but I believe he's on to something quite significant. Plain and simple is that the Lord is going to put these Israelites to the test because he's going to draw out the best in them. He's going to draw them out and put them in a situation where they're going to have to learn to depend on him in all things and do what he says. So the very first test came as they were grumbling about what are we going to drink. And the second test comes about when they start grumbling about what are we going to eat. So if you got your Bibles, look at Exodus 16. Let's just jump in right at verse 1. We're not going to read the whole chapter today. I'm trusting that you're going to read it on your own, but we're going to, to look at a few verses here. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. 
There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. Do you see how they are looking back at their time in Egypt, their time of slavery with great positive feelings? We're so hungry and back in slavery, we just sat around and ate all the time. I, I don't think their memory is quite uh, serving them well. But you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death which doesn't even make sense when you think about what they have come through. Why would God do all that to bring them out there to starve them? I don't know what you call it in your family, but in my family, in the Williams home, we have a word for when hunger and anger join forces. That word in our house is called hangry. Are you familiar with this phrase? Hangry. Hangry is an anger that directly results from being hungry. So you are hangry. And if you have ever raised a wrestler <laughs> in your home who's trying to make weight before he has to wrestle again, then you understand hanger. <laughs> have you ever been hangry? Some of you are hangry right now. I can see it in your face. Some of you are like, if Pastor Joe preaches one second past the top of the hour, I'm going to come out of my skin. <laughs> Why else do you think we serve pizza and donuts around here every weekend? We're trying to curve some hanger so you can get through this. See, the Israelites, they've been out of Egypt for about a month, and they are hangry. And they take it out on Moses and Aaron, their leaders, and they say silly things like, if only we had died by the Lord's hand out in Egypt. There we had all the food we wanted. We were surrounded by pots of food all the time and we ate till we were full. And now we are out here in the desert. There's not a McDonald's anywhere in sight and you brought us out here to die and to starve to death. And they're acting like Moses led them out there deliberately just to starve them. And he's like, I wish, they were like, we should just kill this off already. You know, I find interesting now is that multiple times we've seen in our study, these Israelites have groaned out and grumbled against God. This is not the last time they're going to grumble out against God about these kinds of things. And they make accusations against Moses about, you just let us out here to die. Little did these hangry Israelites know that they would one day get the request, you know. For this entire older generation of Israelites who are doing all of this grumbling, and wish that they would just die here in the desert, they're gonna get their wish, you know. Now, we're not there in our study, but you feel free to read way ahead and catch up to that part, but these Israelites are never gonna see the promised land. And it's interesting how this grumbling actually came true. But God did hear their grumbling. Um, he was very much in tune with their needs. That becomes very obvious in chapter 16 and throughout the whole book of Exodus, actually. And I'm here to tell you today that that has never changed. God always knows what you need. God hears your prayers. He saw that they were hangry, and he responded the same way he sees your needs, and he responds to those needs today. If you look at verse 4, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will, you see this again? I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in 
and that to be twice as much as they gather on the other day. So Moses and Aaron tell the people, God will take care of you. He's gonna take care of your hunger. Literally, bread from heaven, God's food, God's bread will just appear every single morning, and all you have to do is just go out there and gather it up. And the instructions were not that hard to follow, that there's gonna be twice as much that you're gonna have to gather on one certain day, because there's gonna be one day that it's not gonna show up, and, and you need to collect twice as much and prepare it. And little did they know at the time, and we're gonna learn more about this later, but God is preparing these people for a Sabbath day of rest. And this is some of the setting the stage for this with this bread from heaven. Again, this is a test in this way. God said, verse four, I will test them. Why is he testing them? Because they're not ready to be his holy people yet. There's things for them to learn. He's gonna pull out the very best that they got so they become what he has envisioned for their lives. So I'm gonna see if they'll follow my simple, basic instructions. So the simple instructions were this. Pick up what you need every day. Later in the text, you read it on your own. There's a specific amount they're supposed to gather each day, twice as much on Friday. And if you keep it overnight, it's gonna be rotten and, and unedible the next day. In fact, specifically, it says, if you keep this bread longer than you're supposed to, it will be full of maggots and it will smell terrible. That's quite a visual, isn't it? Not only that, but God is gonna provide some meat for them and God will cause a large, large number of quail to fly into their camp and they'll have meat. So look, jump down to verse 11. So the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumblings of the Israelites tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread, and then you will know that I am the Lord your God. Which I read that, I'm going, don't they already know? <laughs> they were rescued out of Egypt, delivered through the Red Sea, led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God turned nasty water into clean drinking water and bread from heaven will fall and quail will fly in and say, eat me. And then they'll know. We learn from the text that everything played out exactly how God said it would. The quail came in and they had meat. And the next day, bread from heaven came in and they gathered it up. And this bread would be their food for the next 40 years until this new generation got to enter into the promised land and that's when the, the bread from heaven stopped appearing. Each morning for 40 years, these Jews got to witness a miracle. Every day for 40 years, they got to see a miracle of God. There are people who will try to explain this away. This mysterious bread, well, it was this, and it was this. It happened in natural conditions, and, and, which is just silly. It's those that try to deny the existence of miracles. This is heaven's bread given by God every day to feed and sustain his people so they would know that I am the Lord your God every single day. And we learn from our chapter here that when the Israelites first saw this bread from God, the first words out of their mouth was, what is it? And because of that, they called it manna. And this text, their chapter tells us that it was a white bread that had a wafer-like uh, texture and, and that was mixed with honey. 
That was manna. It was a white cracker wafer thing that kind of had a little honey taste to it. So that doesn't quite sound so bad. Some of you are hangry right now and you're going, that sounds pretty good. Wish I had a little piece of bread with honey. It's manna. So in a matter of just a few hours, these hangry Israelites went from a group that wanted to die dreaming about how good it was in Egypt to being a group full and happy with a better outlook on life. But the question always hangs over the Israelites, how long is this going to last? Will they always be happy about the manna, this bread from heaven that God provides? Will they always be happy about the meat that God provides? Will they survive? Will they endure under this test of God? Remember, this is all God putting them to the test to bring out their best. Or will they at some point decide to turn their back on God, do their own thing, and not like God's provisions any longer? Well, we know it didn't take them very long to get there. If you jump down to verse 20, it says this. So this great provision from God. However, some of them, now not all of them, but some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it, so part of this bread, this manna, they kept it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell, so Moses was angry with them. Can you imagine Moses walking through the camps, through the tents, going, oh, who kept the manna overnight? It stinks over here. Was it you? What are you doing? I don't know exactly how it went down, but it says Moses was angry with those that didn't trust God. Jump down a few more verses to verse 27. What's it say? Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it up. Why is that a big deal? Because they're not supposed to do that. There's no manna that day. They didn't trust God. They didn't believe him. So they didn't prepare either. So they went out there, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? What I want you to see here in chapter 16 is that these Israelites are a work in progress. There's gonna be more trials. There's gonna be more testing in the future. Times they will meet that test and you'll think, man, what an incredible group of people. And then there's gonna be other times where they're gonna fail miserably as God is trying to pull out the very best of them to be the holy community that he's called them to be. So I wanna encourage you again, <clears throat> to go back sometime today or tomorrow and read the entire chapter of 16. Don't miss any of these details and to see all the provisions and the ways that God provided for these, for these people. But before we go, I wanna draw your attention to a very powerful parallel of Exodus 16 in the New Testament. Um, I wanna draw your attention to some words that Jesus said that very much pulls together this part of the Israelites' journey in the wilderness to our journey through life as a Christian. And you're gonna see a real strong parallel. These Israelites, they complained to God, and what did they say? What are we gonna eat, and what are we going to drink? Did you know that according to Jesus, questions like this, what are we gonna eat, and what are we gonna drink? These kind of questions reveal something about you. Did you know that? These kind of questions, Jesus says, reveal something about your hearts. He said questions like, what am I gonna eat and what am I gonna drink in the context of can I trust God? Jesus like, that can reveal an anxious heart, not a trusting heart. 
And let me tell you, friends, an anxious heart that doesn't trust the Lord can lead to all kinds of problems in your life. You know, in Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, he challenged the people not to ask these specific questions. It's a very direct thing. Do not ask about what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink. He even says, don't ask about what you're going to wear. And Jesus has this whole teaching about the things that we should not worry about in this world, but instead we should just trust God with them. And he points out in this very famous sermon, he says, hey guys, look around at all these birds flying around. You know, they don't sow and they don't reap, but God takes care of them. I can imagine the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus even pointing out some birds. Who knows? Maybe Jesus had one land on his hand. I don't know. But he says, do you see these birds? They don't have a care in the world. They don't worry about the things that you're worrying about. And God takes care of them. And then Jesus says something very, very important. Are you not more valuable than birds? If you have any question about your value today, as it, opposes, as it compares to animals, friends, they're not the same. You are made in the image of God, and birds are not. Now, without taking this on a whole different trajectory here, <laughs> you're more important than birds. And Jesus says, and look how God takes care of the birds. So don't ask these kind of questions. It's interesting. In other words, he says this, though. Instead of that, ask, it, ask something else and be focused on something else. So look at Matthew six thirty one. So do not worry, Jesus says, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? The very questions that the Israelites were grumbling against God for. He says, for the pagans run after these things. In other words, for those people that could care less about God, they run after those things. And your heavenly Father knows you need them. But here's what you do instead, verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things, the things that you tend to be consumed with by worry, all these things will be given to you as well. And I want you to see that Jesus' words here in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, are the very essence of what the Lord was testing the Israelites with here in Exodus 15 and 16. Jesus' words, his teachings, captures the very essence of what's happening in Exodus 16. The question is not, what are we going to eat or drink? The question is this, rather, how am I going to continue to seek the Lord first even when I don't feel like my basic needs are being met? How am I gonna continue to seek him first? How am I gonna continue when I don't feel like I've got what I want or need? How am I gonna continue with the full confidence that the Lord's going to provide for me? So the question is not what are we going to eat and drink, it's how can I continue to serve the Lord and walk in full obedience with him every single day of my life, trusting that he knows what I need. Can I ask you a question today, and only you can answer this, and yes, I'm putting you on the spot, but I don't want you to answer out loud. This is an introspective question. But the question is this, is there anything or any part of you lately that has been grumbling against God? I'm not saying maybe these have words that have come out of your mouth, but maybe words that are trapped inside your heart trying to get out. God, why aren't you doing X, Y, and Z for me? God, why don't you do this? Any of you just got a little bit of grumbling spirit that's trying to get out of you against the Lord because you just are frustrated by something? 
that kind of grumbling against God, if left unchecked and allowed to continue in your life, can absolutely lead to some disaster for you. Just look at the plight of the Israelites through their long history with the Lord and ask the question, how well has this worked out for them in the long run? You know, the, this whole Exodus encounter, this whole uh, escape from Egypt through the Red Sea, their time in the wilderness, it's one of the most documented things and events in the entire Bible. In fact, many of the other Old Testament and New Testament authors wrote about the deliverance of the Israelites. And they talk about it from a lot of different angles. And in the book of Psalms, it writes, you know, the psalmist writes about the time of Exodus. There's this one verse in Psalm chapter 106, verse 14, which is a reference back to the Israelites. And listen to what it says. In the desert, they, the Israelites, gave in to their craving. In the wilderness, they put God to the test. Now, I want you to see something here. This is God testing them. But their response to God often was like, no, God, we're putting you to the test. We're throwing this back up at you. There was quite a bit of grumbling that's still yet to happen in the Old Testament. And there's a lot of flat-out disobedience that's going to take place. Even right here in the book of Exodus, we're just not quite there yet. And, it, and in those moments, it's going to feel like and look like that they are taking everything that God had ever done for them, all the times that he proved to them that I am the Lord your God, there is no other. And it's like they're going to throw it back into his face. Like, no, we're going to test you now, God. And what are you going to do about it? We're going to do what we want. We're going to thumb our nose at you. And what are you going to do about it? And this is what the psalmist is writing about. They're putting God to the test. It's almost like they're taking a disobedient posture towards God and daring him to do something about their disobedience. And I can tell you that happens on an individual basis and it most certainly happens on a national level. It's what I believe our nation and many other nations are doing right now with our rampant sin against the unborn. It's exactly what we're doing. Because our morality right now as a nation does not line up with God's morality. And it's like we're thumbing our nose at God and saying, we're going to do what we want. No one's going to stop us. And, and, and what are you going to do about it, God? What, what are you going to do? This is the posture of our nation and many others right now. It's the posture of our nation and many others when it comes to our rampant sexual immorality in this country. God, we don't care about your design for the most intimate moments of our life. We're gonna do what we wanna do and we're gonna live how we wanna live. What are you gonna do about it? In many ways, we are putting God to the test. Our nation and many others are putting God to the test right now when it comes to the family. God's very clear. It's not complicated teaching. A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The family is to be about a man and a woman coming together in holy matrimony to raise a family. And right now, in many parts of the world, we're like, we don't care and what are you going to do? We're going to march, and we're going to cry out, and we're going to protest, and we're going to do what we want to do. 
and God will respond. Now, I hope I'm in heaven when he does, because I would like to avoid that. Putting God to the test, and I'm here to tell you, friends, we ought not to do that, ever. The old saying goes like this, and many of you are familiar with it. The heart of every problem is the problem in the heart. The heart of every problem is the problem in the heart. And the Israelites need to work out a heart problem, and it's the same problem you and I must work out as well. The heart of the matter is this, that we are called all the time to focus the glory on God all the time. Not on our own appetites, not on our own wants, not on our own agendas. God and what he's doing is greater than even our hunger and our thirst. So we should not ask about those things. If we walk by faith, then we glorify the Lord and we bring honor to his name. And what these Israelites have not learned yet here in chapter 16 is the very same thing that you and I struggle with to learn today. And it's this. It isn't important that we're comfortable in this life. But it is important that God is glorified. It isn't important that we get our way. But it is important that God accomplishes his purposes and receives all the glory. So I come back to Jesus' words. Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? The people that don't care about the Lord, they run after those things. Your heavenly Father knows you need them, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things, these things that we tend to worry about. God's gonna take care of that because he knows you need them. That was the heart of the matter in the wilderness. Do you trust God or not? And it's still the heart of the matter in the church today. Do you trust God or not? He who has an ear, let him hear what the word of God has to teach us today. Let me pray for you. Lord, we just give you thanks and praise as always for your holy word how it continues to teach and guide and shape our lives today. And Lord, I thank you that the Bible so clearly points out that the Israelites are just not all that different from us. Struggles with things that we struggle with today, like trusting you and glorifying you in all things and not always having it our way, but most importantly, wanting it to be your way all the time. Lord, our prayer is simple today. May your glory reflect off of our lives and shine right back to you. That Lord, would you continue to work through us like your word says that we are your ambassadors as if speaking for the King Jesus uh, yourself right through us, Lord. And that people through our lives would see you, that people through our church would see you. And that Lord, if there's ever a day when this new life family stops reflecting your glory onto a lost world, then Lord, close us down. But Lord, that's not our desire. And you know, Lord, it's not our desire. Lord, we want to serve you and honor you in every ounce of our lives. So, Lord, 
We just thank you today for your son, Jesus Christ, for dying on the cross for our sins, raising back to life three days later, giving us one to follow throughout our lives and on into heaven, Lord. And Lord, this adoption into your family, being your son or daughter for all time, is the greatest glory we could ever want to come from this life. So Lord, help us to live for you, trust you in everything. In Jesus' name, amen.